Hi, and welcome to our uh, Church Multipliers conversation here. We've got Richard Blackaby here with us today with my, me and my co-host, Jeff Christofferson. We're going to talk about um, moving from doctrinal precision to spiritual authority. And Jeff, I am really excited about this conversation today. So I'm, I'm hoping, um, yeah, that I can contain that <laughs> a little bit Um but I want to encourage our audience to, you know, both, hey, welcome. This is interactive. So as you have questions, do put them in the chat. Um, hopefully we can get to some of them. But we're going to have a really robust conversation with our guest here. And um, I just want to say up front, before we get started, um, that, that Jeff and Richard and I, like we all believe in the inerrancy of Scripture we're uh, fans of the word of God. We believe it's the word of God. Um, and so as we have this conversation today, uh, I just want to lay that groundwork so that we can have a full and, and like I said, robust conversation and just be clear with what we're not saying. So we're not going to jump on any slippery slopes here, um, but we are going to explore the boundaries um, of what the, the role that scripture plays and, and what does it mean for us to move from doctrinal precision to spiritual authority as the thing that we're committed to and the thing that we're loyal to. So Jeff, why don't you tell us a bit about your friend um, and yeah. our guest here today? Yeah. So thank you, Jesse. That was a great way just to open this up because um, this conversation, we're actually going through uh, a six major ideas that uh, aren't novel or new, but I think they're they've been lost in our in the shuffle of a lot of things in our in our pragmatistic way that we go about church and um, and so today under this show number five a, a different fidelity a shift from doctrinal precision to spiritual authority we're very much in, in looking back to the the world that Jesus walked into where there were. The, there was a group of religious leaders who were very careful in um, and making sure that they they understood everything, or at least thought they understood everything, and making sure everyone towed the line to exactly the way they understood, and um, and yet they missed the heart of what what uh, the word of God was about. And so we're really just talking about how do we how do we get get away from um, this blind idea. Of, of making sure that we have all the correct doctrinal positions and that we that we aren't seeking, seeing through a glass dimly that we have this perspective that is right in all things and, and say no probably there could be some mystery there could be some questions of we do not know and uh, at the same time with all of that we want to be able to understand that it's possible to experience spiritual authority and uh, which is something that uh, the Pharisees never got to see. And so um, I am excited. I have Richard Blackaby here. Um, Richard and I have been friends since we were teenagers. We've grown up together and went to youth camp together and sister churches beside each other in Saskatchewan and, um, and, and have spent even years together every, every Thursday morning at 6 a.m. praying for one another in a, in a accountability group. So um, it's just wonderful to have you here, Richard. Well, it's great to be with both of you. Yeah, we, uh, we're gonna, I'm just gonna lob, lob an easy one up. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, I'll have to see that. These will all be easy questions. <laughs> just to get us going. And again, 
um, helped set a little bit of the context of why we thought this subject was important for um, church planters, missional leaders, people engaging lostness to be able to understand. So uh, picking up what we looked at two weeks ago when we um, uh, were looking with D.A. Horton and Glenn Smith, um, modernity asked the question, what is truth? And we're used to that question, aren't we? In fact, most of our apologetics try to answer that question. What is what is what is the real truth about something? And uh, but secularity, it seems, is no longer asking that question, um, where where every spiritual system has to now sing for its supper, including atheism, including secularism, including Christianity. Um, it seems like what people are asking now not is what is an absolute truth, but what works and um, what 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 belief system is actually going to make a difference in my life. And so kind of with that perspective, um, why do you think this subject of, of spiritual authority is so critical for um, missional leaders engaging secularity, Richard? Well, good question, Jeb. You know, in with the social media world we're in, everybody has an opinion. Everybody is pronouncing on truth. And so we've never been so inundated with people with suggesting answers for truth. Uh, and it's who has the most followers, who shouts the loudest, who, uh, you know, debunks others the most. Um, and so with so many people saying, well, this is truth and this is truth. I think it, it's almost natural that at some point society says, well, wait a minute, with so many different, you know, definitions here, which one actually works? Like, and I don't, I don't mind that question. I kind of like it. I'm, I'm a practical sort of person too. So, you know, you've got, and I'm going to get into politics, but uh, you've got cities and states that have been run by the same political party for 40 years. And yet crime is horrible. Poverty and homelessness is horrible. And yet the next election comes around, they insist that they're the only ones who have the answers. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, you've been in power for 40 years and it hasn't worked. Like at some point, don't we just have to decide what you're doing doesn't work? Uh, and so I like that. I you, you have to define work. You know, you've got to decide what is what results do you claim you're going to get? If it, I mean, a church isn't just trying to get numbers, obviously. You're not trying to get people in the pew. But, uh, but if you're trying to get God honoring, Jesus following, Jesus uh, character like uh, sanctified disciples that are, you know, going for the Great Commission. If that's your goal and what you're doing is getting that, then praise God, it's it, it's working. So hmm. I may not agree with all of your ways of doing it, but I'm looking at the fruit. I mean, that's the Bible calls results fruit, and if you've got the fruit, I'm going to have to conclude something's working for you, that there's truth there. So I like that question, actually, because it, it holds people accountable for all the proclamations that they're making. That's great. I mean, just to follow up on that just a little bit, like, don't you think that if it's the truth, it will work, right? I mean, at some yeah. level. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you're, yes, you're right. It has to be something like, more than just a belief in, right. you know, you can believe it all you want. And I'm, you know, that's fine. You believe it. It's just not working for you. It's like, you know, some of the, like Nietzsche was convinced that his, you know, approach was right, but he committed suicide. Like that's like, okay, well, I saw where your philosophy got you. I don't, I'm not going with that belief system, but, uh, but you know, I love uh, when Jesus in John eight thirty two he said, you'll know the truth 
And you know why you know the truth? Because it's going to set you free. If you haven't been set free, then somehow you, you may know about the truth. Mm, you may have good. heard of the truth, but you haven't been set free by the truth. So, uh, you know, anyone who tells me that they're preaching truth, I don't, don't take me to the Greek exegesis. I just want to say, so who's being set free by the truth you're proclaiming? And mm. if, if everywhere I look in your church, people are set free from their sin and their, the bondage of their past and, and whatever, then I want to say that you've got to be on to truth somewhere there because everywhere I look, people are being set free by it. That's so really good. How do we think about that then? Or, or how would you suggest we think about that when in order to at least validate other people's narratives and stories and experiences, you know, as we as we understand that not everybody experiences the same event, the same people have different experiences of history, right? And history is written by those who won. So everyone who didn't win and doesn't have the power then isn't writing history, but they still have stories to tell. And as we've embraced that, we've kind of co-mingled that with our conversations about truth to get to the place where we say my truth, which is kind of a really like, uh, you know, ontologically, the history of that phrase is a fascinating thing for me to think about, but we, we're we using this commonly now in our language and in our um, world and in relationships to say, you know, here's my truth to describe my perspective or my experience, but we're still calling it truth because of that emphasis for validation. So why do you think that that personalized truth um, is so offensive to people. Like, why do we wrestle with this? Where's where's the rub here that we can't understand people have a different experience? Yeah, well, you know, the problem sometimes with these discussions is that words go into vogue that are not necessarily the most precise, you know? And so if, you, if, if the wrong word or the imprecise term gets put into the the driver's seat, then it's going to, it's going to create problems right away. So when we think of truth, certainly an evangelical believes that ultimately there is a truth that when Jesus said, you know, uh, I'm the way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the father except by me. Phone off you. Um, that's the truth. And so if someone else says, well, my truth is that Buddha gets me there. So I'd say, well, okay, that's no, that's, that's not true. There's, you know, th- there is a truth there, but at the same time, it's in scripture. Um, but see, I like, so I prefer to say it's your perspective, your journey, your experience. Now that's true. That, that, I mean, that's valid. Like uh, we, we, we may have a different perspective on the same truth. Uh, and that's, that's valid. You, you, you view truth from this perspective, but truth really remains the same it's just your your journey and your experience of it so you know in in uh, first corinthians 12 you know paul's talk about the body if you ask the ear well what's the truth of the situation well the loud noises it's piercing it's horrible and you ask the eye well what's your experience well i didn't hear any i didn't see any of that you know i, I that, that wasn't my experience i saw this beauty and i and well which is true well they both experienced truth. It just, one was experienced it as an eye, one as an ear. So, you know, I've kind of learned uh, that, and I'm a historian. So when, when that's my, that's my background. So uh, I, I, you know, I'll just share uh, at the depth, the height, whatever you want to call it of the racial discord this past summer, I've got an African-American neighbor. It's great, great guy, Christian, really, what is a super guy. 
And I, I, we were out, I was out running and ran across him and said, look, I need to talk to you because I, I really want to know your perspective on this. I grew up as a Caucasian in Canada um, and, and now I'm living in the South and I just would like to know what an African-American Christian, how, how you view that. Well, he came over and sat in my office and we, we talked for a couple of hours. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing, the first thing he shared with me was uh, he, I, was actually factually untrue. He said, he was actually talking about the president then, and he said, this event happened and the president wasn't there. And I, that really bothered me. Um, and I said, hey, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm here to listen. But I said, you know, the, the event you're talking about, um, the president, like the, the current president wasn't president then. I mean, factually, that's not accurate. You, he wasn't there because he wasn't the president. And he kind of stopped and thought, oh, I guess that's right. He said, but uh, he said, well, I still believe that. I just, I, but you know, the facts aside. And so I thought, well, I don't want to argue the facts because that there's, there's, I mean, we could, I could nitpick his facts and he admitted that that particular fact was incorrect, but, but I want to get to his attitude. So when he starts telling me about a friend that was shot to death in the street in front of him and that he, you know, and he starts telling me some of the uh, ways he's been mistreated I, I come away saying, well, wow. I mean, if I'd had your experience, I probably would view these facts in your perspective too. So I, I don't necessarily agree with all of your conclusions about truth, but I'll tell you what, when you, when you sit down with someone and just listen to them, like just stop, don't argue, just listen, listen until you understand. Uh, I may not still see everything the way they do, but, but now I can understand why they see things the way they do. And there, I may be an eye and they may be an ear. We're, we're trying to get at the same truth, but we're coming at it from different perspectives. And, and so that doesn't necessarily make them wrong. It just means they've had a different journey. And uh, so, of course, they, they, they've had different sensory things happen to them. So, I, you know, I'm, I think as Christians, we, need to, we probably need to be listening a lot more than we are. And we'd understand a lot more if we did. Yeah, <clears throat> Richard, that's such a, a great way to frame frame this, I think, is because we have words that to us are very important, and they, they, words are symbols, and, um, and so the, the, they symbolize things that are very, very dear and important and worth giving your life for, um, truth being one of them. And, um, and when, when, when we hear uh, someone who has no religious memory, no background, no Christian, didn't drop out of church, never went to church, um, using phrases like my truth, it causes some people to bristle, doesn't it? But yeah. I think you're right. I think what we need to do is maybe do a little less bristling and a little more listening and, yeah. um, and get them and get the heart of what's behind what they're talking about, which gives an incredible opportunity for, um, for a, a, a gospel um, conversation that is right in the heart of where they're living. And so, yeah. Well, you know, if, if a person doesn't know Christ, the only truth they have is their truth. Yeah. <laughs> it is their truth because yeah. what other truth do they have? So exactly. as a Christian, we get defensive because now we we have the truth living within us and as our Lord and Savior. So we have a higher truth, but they don't. So, you know, you can't, you can't condemn a guy for something they don't have. Like if they don't have God's truth, then you can't condemn them for not having it. You, our job is to help introduce them to it so they embrace it themselves. So, so let's, let's just shift the conversation a little bit here. And um, the, the, I think it's probably 
not many people would disagree with the fact that many of the norms of evangelicals um, would be consistent with the culture outside of it. Um, um, our, our marriages are, you know, not a lot, doing a lot better than the culture outside of it. Um, you just name the category and our opinions, our political opinions are, are a lot, lot of different things that we're, that we kind of align with um, are, are very similar to a world outside of the church. And, um, and yet, yet we will spend a lot of time in the church talking about doctrinal precision. Um, and, and yet we, even those who claim to be kind of stakeholders in that often exhibit no corresponding spiritual authority. There is no freedom, as you were talking about earlier. There is no um, or very little sometimes uh, difference that you can tell what a lost person and what a Christian looks like other than opinions. Mm-hmm. And, um, but you, you've had the privilege, Richard, of, of speaking around the globe. You have seen the church in places where it is exploding um, in, in incredible ways. And uh, maybe just, maybe I'm just going to throw a bunch of questions at you and you just, uh, you sure. just uh, answer them any way you want. But what is that church that you've seen that has, spiritual authority what does it look like what what doesn't it look like what do their leaders look like what does discipleship look like just describe that for us well you know i certainly haven't been everywhere but i've i've been a lot of places and i've been in muslim countries uh i've been in very strongly you know dominated by one particular faith uh that wasn't necessarily evangelical and uh uh and very pagan places and um and I, right away, some different churches come to my mind. And I'll tell you, the churches I've been in that where you feel like there's a real authority, I mean, you walk in the door and number one, there's joy. There's, I, I, when I see some churches, they may be precise in their doctrine, but they're dead as a doornail. And then, but the churches that really have an authority, there's joy, uh, there's expectancy, uh, there's life change. And I remember one church, it was a town of 120,000 people, but they were running 12,000 just in their church. And they had to have six services to get everybody in. They had 12, they had 2,000 people to service. And uh, and every solitary service, uh, they had they had to have at least 100 people come forward to, to acknowledge that they'd just become Christians. And it was funny that their translate was in Brazil. The service is in Portuguese, and the translator was saying to me, "Now, Richard, um, at the end of the service, a bunch of people are going to come forward and, and acknowledge they're Christians. But just so you don't get a big head, this happened during the week in our home groups. They're just acknowledging it publicly today. So before <laughs> you think it's all your preaching, <laughs> they said, "No, this is happening all week long. This is just sort of the harvest time. Each week we do this." And I thought, wow, like every week, and they just know it. Like when it got time to the altar call, they they start removing the first three rows of chairs at the front of the of the auditorium because they need room for all the people who are coming forward, and they know they're coming, you know. And they, um, and so you see that, and you think, okay, you know, I if I could nitpick certain things they might say and do, but there's no question to me that they've already got ten percent of their entire town coming into their church building every week. And then this church is planning churches all up and down every village around it for a hundred miles. Uh, and you just think that's, that's the gospel. Mm-hmm. Or you, I'm in a Muslim country and I see, uh, I, I, on a, I think it was a maybe Saturday night, uh, 
I go, I, I can, we're going on an elevator up into this, this uh, building. It's a big, big auditorium, but it's a business. It's an office building that they use for church because it's a Muslim country. They kind of have to be discreet about it. And you, you go in and it just filled with young people, just filled with them. And they're all, it's one of the most vibrant worship services I've ever been in. And I see this one older guy, he's jumping up and down and uh, he's into the, 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 the worship. And I couldn't help but think, wow, that guy, like he doesn't really fit in here, all these young people. And there's an old guy just going to town. Well, then I realized he's the pastor and, <laughs> and, but he's, but he's reaching all these young people and he's the most enthusiastic guy there. He was a, he was a physician and he, God got hold of him left his medical practice and started a church and now it's just teeming with young people and in a muslim country and i i look at that and i just think wow like there's you you can tell when you get in a church that's vibrant and growing and and when they preach when they make announcements when they share there's just an, they they know that what they're sharing is real and they know that what they're sharing is going to impact the people who are hearing it and there's a confidence because they keep seeing it every week they see life change they see the power of god and when, when you see that, and then you, you come back to I, I, that, that church in Brazil, I saw it, and then I came back, then I was president in, in Canada, and I came back to a seminary with a bunch of students. They were all nitpicking about this word and that phrase and that doctrine. And I just, I just come from a, a church that was just seeing a huge harvest of God's work. And I, it just really took the wind on my sails. I was just like, folks, if you could see what real church looked like, you'd quit nitpicking and you'd, 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 you'd ask God to set your heart on fire. Hmm. I mean, this, Richard, this makes me think about um, my own upbringing. And my, my mother was a witch before she was a Christian. Wow. And so she was, became a Christian before I was born. But she taught me a lot about what the occult teaches hmm. and in, in the form of like, hey, they teach scripture because they will use scripture to try to, to talk to Christians and, and to do this thing. And, and I'm just a little kid. And, and let me just say it was an intense childhood for many reasons. Um, but she taught me that Jesus in me, even as a small child, as a five-year-old, that Jesus in me was more powerful than anything that could come against me. Like, so, so that spiritual authority existed because of the Holy spirit, because of the work of the cross. And as a five-year-old, it's not like I could debate scripture, right? Like, like I'm a precocious kid and I can memorize a lot, but um, you know, that separating spiritual authority and what is it like to be in the kingdom? And what is it like to have union with God as something separate from um, and supported by that time in the word and that, that doctrinal um, work and that doctrinal study. So as I'm, as I think about what you're describing and just the light and the joy, I think, you know, it, it, it's worth remembering that union with God is different than understanding the Bible or reading the Bible, right? Yeah. Knowing God is different than knowing the Bible. Yeah, And as we push closer into his presence, there's more joy, there's more life, there's more love, there's more freedom. And you can't fake that, right? No. So, so we don't have to worry about too much freedom because we're in his presence. And if it's sinful, he's going to talk to us about it, right? We can trust, yeah. we yeah. can trust that intimacy. We can, we can trust um, his, his glory there. And so as, as we talk about what, spiritual authority looks like what do you think 
you know, kind of, why do you think maybe is a better question from my heart? Why do you think we substitute the Bible for a relationship with God? Why do you think we substitute this? I can define everything that's in the Bible and I can control it and manage it and handle it. Why do we substitute that for this wild love that we you know, maybe can't control and can't understand. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it's the same reason that people have idols in the Old Testament, because when you have an idol, you're in charge. You put your idol on whatever shelf you want to put them on. You you put them away, you worship him, you do, you craft him to, to look what you, you want him to look like. Uh, you you offer what sacrifices you want. We, we, we still deep down want a certain amount of control in our relationship with God. And, uh, but when you, anywhere in the Bible where people actually came in, like, like Isaiah in chapter six, when he faces God, he's not in control. <laughs> you know, he's just, woe is me is what he is. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I'm always reminded of John chapter five, verses 39 and 40, Jesus, I mean, nailed it on the head. He said, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. It's it's easy, and and I know this will this will you know raise the cockles in some people's hearts here, but um, but but the Bible points to God. The Bi- the the Bible's not God. It point it's His Word. It points to Him. But there but you can control the Bible. You can exegete it. You can parse it. You can analyze it. You can read commentaries about it. You can speculate about it. But when you come face to face with God, that's a whole other story. And so we sort of, so when you're relating to God, there's no pride in there. You know, you can't stand before God and be proud, but you can learn the Bible so well that you can become very proud of your Bible knowledge. And, and that's why Jesus said, Matthew 23, 27, you're like whitewashed tombs. Like you're theologically precise, but you're dead inside. You're you're like a grave inside because I see your heart and you've got all the knowledge, but you're, you're dead. And I mean, Jesus, I mean, he just kind of, Put it right out there, and then, and then Acts four thirteen that that you know James or, or Peter and John are brought before the authorities, and they say they realize they're untrained, they're uneducated, they're not impressive in their Bible knowledge, they're not scholars, but it was obvious they'd been with Jesus because they're bold and because they're doing miracles, they've got power. And I would say, you know, I'd rather if someone has to decide something about me, it's not how impressive they are with my mental ability to memorize and parse things. It's that I hope that they say that's the man who's been with Jesus. Just you can tell he's bold, he's confident, he's he's powerful. And and so, yeah, I, I would say, why would you ever settle for a substitute for God? Like uh, the Bible is simply a vehicle that get, helps you to get to God. It's well, man, word. That's like that's what my, my mom would say that the 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 demonic has better theology than you because yeah. they live there and yeah. right they know how to see it interacts with each other they know how long creation took and yet what does that get them yeah so yes. I, I you know it's a relationship it's my dad when he wrote experiencing god everybody said well i've known about god all my life i've never experienced i've never actually related to him like he's a person. I've always related to him like he was a doctrine. And I, we always say he, you, you need to have good doctrine, but God is not a doctrine. He's a person. And you relate to persons personally. But, but, but for a lot of people, the Pharisees among us, they, they relate to a book and statements and creeds and doctrinal statements, and, and they agonize over 
one word instead of just saying, but what about God, the person God? Uh, and that doesn't mean you, you know, doctrine is important, but it doesn't substitute a relationship with God. So Richard, that, that couldn't have been said better. I don't think, um, I think that really sums up why we want, why this, this particular conversation fits into the larger conversation that we're talking about, because we're in a, um, I think a deficit in North America, at least in North America, where, um, we have sort of built our own island, our own subculture, and um, and we've you know written our codes and we, as you described them, our creeds are are and and we we define who's in, who's out. We have our own shibboleth, and we uh, and we really we get we get we get that, and um, and yet we are a in Canada. I think we are you know ninety uh, uh, maybe a five percent out of ninety five percent, something like that. I don't know. In the U.S., mm-hmm. it's a little better, but the numbers mm-hmm. are go- trending in the wrong direction, yeah. and. Um, um, and, and this idea that we we have been that somehow if we have the the right truth we say it in the right way and we convince everybody that's amongst our numbers to believe exactly in the same way we believe we're going to somehow win this this battle, yeah. um, which is a lie and it's you know and so you, you've got a you've been a president of a seminary so I think the next question really just is is perfect for that where. Um, I'm a student. I'm a prospective student. I've sensed God's calling me into ministry. I wanna. I really, you know, I I value the kingdom of God, and I I want to, um, you know, I just want to be abandoned in Him. Allow Him to use me. I'll, uh, I will walk by faith. If He says jump, I'll jump. I just really want to be used by Him. Um, what kind of a school should I look for? Um, what, what, what should be the, what should be the environment that trains me? Have you got any advice for that guy? Uh, Well, I do, (laughs) you know, and I've got a lot of theories about that because number one, I believe in seminaries. I think if you're going to spend your life serving the Lord, don't take shortcuts in your training, get, get trained. Right. But there's a lot of places to get training. And I'll tell you the number one problem with seminaries is that you have academicians teaching people how to be practitioners. And so you've got theologians doing exactly what you said. They're saying, if you just believe right, God will bless your church. It's all about theology. And the preaching professors tell you it's all about preaching. Just preach good sermons. And, you know, whoever your specialist is. Now, if you said, but where did you do that yourself? Like, what church did you grow just having good theology? Well, most of them have never done that. Most of them have never led anything. So it's all just, and that's what's happening to so many uh, people today is they're getting this very focused, specialized little point of view, but but they've never actually practiced it in reality. They've never done it successfully. So, you know, I would say to a student, number one, uh, find, find a school that has people you want to be around, not because they're brilliant, but they're godly and because they've done it. They've They've been out in church. They started churches in pagan secular areas and grew them to be vibrant churches. And and they're great communicators to this modern age, and uh, they're great evangelists. And get around them. My dad always just said, "Don't don't pick classes, pick people, pick professors. You just want to rub up against and people who've done it, and and look for schools that have a track record. Um, not not necessarily how many books have their professors written, but when when their graduates have gone out into churches, what has happened to those churches? 
Like I literally know some denominational leaders and you do too, <laughs> who if they see a resume coming from certain schools, they will not recommend them to search committees because every time they get one of those schools graduates, the church plummets in attendance. It, it gets divisive. The pastor doesn't cooperate with other churches and believers. He, be, he just becomes a resident critic of everybody in the area. And so when I, I would say, well, what, what do your graduates do? If show me the churches where your graduates have gone and, and the church plants that have emerged from your graduates and, and look at their product. And if you really like their product and you want to be one of their products, <laughs> then go there. Hmm. But uh, just because they write controversial things and they criticize what everyone else is doing, I don't, you know, if you, if you go to a school that teaches you to be critical, then that's what will happen. You, you go to a school that teaches you how to be a positive uh, church planner and positive leader, uh, then that's what hopefully will happen to you. So look at their product and then pick, pick up a place where you don't mind becoming their next product. Yeah, and, and um, that yeah, that's counterintuitive. But man, if you, if you just sort of look around for a while, you see it, don't you? I mean, oh, it's that yeah. you you see what comes out of the pipe, and um, and the the process produces the product, and that product is, you know, in some cases, the worst thing that can happen to a church <laughs> or, or a community. And so, um, how about the other side of that same question? So you're you're um you're leading a, you're leading a seminary and there's lots of people who are listening to this or influential in that and um or you're leading a bible college you're leading some kind of way that you want to train people that are actually going to um make a, a big dent in darkness mm-hmm. um what what would you what advice would you give from your experience as a, a leader of a seminary as well as what you've seen around the world that's working? What advice would you give that that influencer on their school to be thinking about not only their curriculum but their their processes? Well, you know, certainly the processes, uh, you know, Jesus, I think, did three things when he trained his disciples. He taught them, then he sent them out to practice. And then he brought them back in and they processed what had happened. And we just do the first thing, basically. We teach them. So, you know, you and I know, Jeff, so many people that went to school to train to be a church planner. And they, you know, you could sit, talk to them during the break time and they could talk nonstop about all their opinions about church planning. And they had it all figured out. And then they didn't last a year once they got out and actually tried it. You know, and so I, I think we sh- shouldn't wait till they graduate to let them actually try their theories. Mm-hmm. I, I think you know, it's great. I mean, I, I want to have accurate theology. I want to have accurate doctrines, but everything I believe about God, I want to be pushed into practicing that. I'm, I, I want to live that doctrine. So if I believe something about, if God's all powerful, that's great. Okay. So where is that power being experienced in my life and my ministry? And if he sets people free, okay, who in my life is being set free? So, you know, you can have this pristine theology. And I, I if someone's in a theology class and They've got this pristine theology. It's all worked out, every little point. I'd say, okay, now I want you this week to go find a lost person and try to explain that to them and try to make it actually sound reasonable to a person that doesn't have your faith. And if they laugh at you and tell you you're crazy, I mean, what you believe may be true, but it means you need to process it some more and you need to you need to figure out how to put it into your life. And so, you know, if I were in a, at running a school now, I would... I, we, and we tried, you know, we, we're always trying to implement stuff to do that. 
but most seminary students don't think they need it. It's like, it's up here, you know? So I got it all up there. And I, I, the older I got, the more I would say, and you, and with that attitude, you're not going to last two years. I've just seen enough to know it won't last two years. Take that, that te- you have to have the teaching, but then go practice the teaching. And then when you fall on your face, come back and we'll process it and we'll teach you some more and we'll send you out, let you practice it again until you get it right. Then you're ready to go plant a church or be a pastor. But, but, but too many schools were just so heady. And I'll just tell you, head knowledge cultivates pride. Christ-likeness cultivates humility. You can't, you never be proud of being so, you know, really like Jesus but you can really be proud about how much you have in your head. And so uh, I've seen a lot of very prideful students be humbled by the reality of actual real life. So somehow schools uh, have got to, and I, well, actually when our, when our, the seminary I led was being accredited. We had uh, an accrediting team come in and the biggest criticism, when they sat down at my president's table, the first criticism they gave me, they said, you have about 70% or so of your students are like serving in churches right now. Like that's, they shouldn't be doing that. They said, this guy's from the most liberal denomination in Canada. And he was like, there was, that's dying by, you know, leaps and bounds. But he said, you shouldn't have them do that. They should, this is when they should be reading books and they should be studying. And I said, I'm not teaching them to be scholars. I'm teaching them to be pastors. So we're, we put them in churches. That's what we want to do. But we actually got flack. We almost, they, they threatened to not accredit us because we were trying to do the very thing I'm trying to say. So there's a, a push not to do that. Just, to, just have academicians that sit around debating theology all day, and then let's see how well they do when they go out and try and start a church. And the other end of that spectrum, I, I remember going to a school and I spoke at a chapel and spoke at a, a couple uh, classes and they had me at little luncheons in between. And so there's flesh coming out here because they didn't schedule me to eat anywhere in this day. And, uh, <laughs> and then they had me sort of sandwiched with interviews with p- potential church planning kind of students. And when I had those interviews, I was getting um, grilled on my theology. <laughs> and, um, and one after that, so the last guy, you know, I, I about had it. And I said, so you, you planted a church? And he goes, well, no. And I go, oh, you're pastoring a church? Well, no. Well, you've pastored in the past? No. Well, you're on staff in a church? No. Well, you, you lead us uh, like a Bible study or missional community somewhere? No. Um, well, <laughs> how about you do something first and then come and uh, critique my theology after that? And, uh, <laughs> you, you're, you're not always at your best when you haven't eaten, Jeff. <laughs> this just triggers my neuroscientist, you know, my, my educational neuroscientist person, like how you, how you learn, how you grow. I can introduce you to like 30 to 40 years of scholarly work, you know, so Richard, let me know if anybody pushes back again, you know, (laughs) (laughs) on why that is the only way to learn, (laughs) only way to learn. Um, Yeah. So, so let's, let's think about those church planters um, just a little bit. So, you know, let's say I'm looking to plant a church and I, you know, I'm, I'm in a city that has no Christians. Right. So I'm whether that's my neighborhood or my building um, or my little town and and, you know, the church that I was planting or working on. Right. Because I was one of those who was really excited and we were going to introduce everyone to a 2020 vision. And then things got locked down. And and so now I've lost half my people. I have my elders. I have my leaders 
who are burnt out and tired, right? And I've got maybe 40% um, of who I had left. And so I'm feeling, I'm feeling discouraged, right? Um, and I want to move forward into this next season in spiritual authority because I've also been, you know, I've also been burnt out. And and I want to, I want to lean into where there's grace, right? Because I agree with the world. If it doesn't make a difference in my life, what am I doing? What is the point? What is what is worth laying it all down for? And so I want to see that it's worth it. I want to see that it's making a difference in my life and in the life of those who I love and, and around me. How would what advice would you give to me as that church planter wanting to, you know, move towards that that spiritual authority to go deeper than that to experience the things that we hear elsewhere, but they seem like fairy tales. Yeah, good. Well, you know, and Jeff knows this. My my oldest son, Mike, that's his story. He about 2019, he moved to Victoria, Canada, to a wealthy part of the city which I think demographically was one of the least church attending regions in all of North America. Like there, I don't know if there's any place in North America that went to church less than his community he's trying to reach. So he gets there and he's getting a, a, a core group and they're, you know, have a place to meet and, and, and he's trying to get them outward focused. They've got all these out, these outreach events, tennis camps and events in the park and all that. And then 2020 hits and, and, you know, he's been going at it for about a year and then bang for, and in Canada, as Jeff knows, you can't meet at all. Like he can't even have 10 people gather. And so it's just shut down. And when most of your church focus is reaching new people, like it's one thing to kind of, you know, try to care for your core group, like, but they're not in your group yet. Like, how do you meet total strangers when you can't have them in your home or do anything? Like you got, you're wearing a mask while you're trying to meet a total stranger. And like, it's just it just shuts it down. And so we, I've had some of those conversations with that very kind of church planner who's saying, and my son said, he's talked to so many church planners who said, if I'd known that COVID was coming, I would never have come up here the year before and re and tried to plan to start a church then when I, when you get shut down for over a year. But, but the advice I'd give him and the advice I give him my son is number one, God knew COVID was coming when he called you. Right. So I, you, I know your journey. I know you felt called of God. You told me the whole journey, how God affirmed it and told you to go and he worked everything out. And so like God doesn't make mistakes. So go back to your call. Remember how he got you there and assume that God doesn't make mistakes. So he, he knowing COVID was coming, he put you there. And there's a whole bunch of people there without God. I mean, they're bewildered. They're in fear of COVID. Like they're facing life and death and they're not ready to die and there you are, a light. And the whole thing about spiritual authority means that people take you seriously. That's what, to me, that's what spiritual authority is, is that in the midst of all these opinions, when you speak, people listen. That's what they said about Jesus. They said, when he spoke, he didn't speak like all the Pharisees, all the religious experts. He spoke as one with authority. They could just tell it was different. And so I would say to my son or anyone in that, that boat, um, go back to your call and then get as close to Jesus as you can. And whatever Jesus says to you in your time with him, get out in the community and, and, and see who you run into who needs the very thing God talked to you about that day and what God's doing in your life right now and connect the spiritual dots. And I, I'll tell you just so many times my son has said that my son got a PhD in, the, in apologetics. He studied his old dissertation was on Sam Harris. He studied one of the most the leading atheists in the world today. And, uh, 
and the other day he he was so excited because he'd met with the guy kind of got in a conversation and the guy had been just enamored with sam harris and and when mike said oh yeah i've read that book he couldn't believe that a christian had read a book by a leading atheist in fact he's mike said i've read everything he's he's written the guy couldn't believe it and, and but mike also has studied all of his weaknesses and flaws and mike said well he says this and that's interesting but but he but he fails here and he doesn't say this and he's inconsistent here and the guy finally just said, we got to talk some more. I've never met a, a Christian who knows so much about this. Well, I tell you, my son was just like messaging me as fast as he could saying, all that study, like I actually got to talk to a, an atheist about atheism. He said, this is so cool. And, and this is during COVID. My, my son had his first baptism during COVID. And uh, I just said, Mike, you know, God's still at work. Like it's going to take more than COVID to, to get God out of the game, you know? So just, 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 now, you can get discouraged and your plans might not work, but God, God's plans, he, he's got all kinds of contingency backups. He can keep on going. So uh, just, just kind of get in his rhythm and his groove. And, uh, you know, I, I, with, with Mike, what I, what I found is he, he found the, the small gains, the, the small victories, uh, the surprising victories. Um, the other day he was getting a little discouraged and he was saying, you know, because my son's a great preacher and he can't, they can't, He's, he's, he's live streaming, so he's doing a great job with that, but he wants to get in front of people. But uh, the other day, uh, his, well, I was on a Zoom with my son, and, and his wife got on and said, hey, Mike's being too hard on himself. He said, they, they've got a son that's in, in uh, kindergarten this year, and this uh, little boy has become friends with my grandson. And, and, uh, and so one day, this little boy, his, his mother brought, came up and gave him all kinds of Star Wars shirts. And uh, my my, my, my daughter-in-law said, Richard, you know why that's so significant? Like they have got, we've gotten to be friends with his mother and they know us and, and they know we're a pastor, a church planner. But he said, his mother is married to her wife. They're, they're, they're as a lesbian couple. They're not, they're not believers. They know that Mike and his wife are church planners, but they have been so drawn to them that they're giving them all kinds of clothes and, and they, they, they want to bless them. And I said, God's at work. Like God is, you're building bridges. Like these people are reaching out to you. Like they're saying, once COVID's over, let's get together. I said, there's still stuff happening. Like it's, it may not be as fast as you'd want, but if you keep your spiritual eyes open, God's always, that's the biggest thing my dad taught in experiencing God is God's always at work around you. So it, it may not be according to the plan you had in 2019, but God's plans are always better anyway. So just let him upgrade your plans and, You'll, you'll be as busy as, as you can be just keeping up with what God's doing right now. I love that because it just reminds us how much different revelation is from information and that yeah. revelation changes life. Revelation carries that spiritual authority. Information is just, you know, meh, kind of yeah. over here. And, oh, yeah. that, and you know, and, and there's too many critics out there. I've never known a revival to begin <laughs> from a critic who just criticized everybody into revival. You know, he just pointed out everything that was wrong and suddenly the spirit of God fell, you know, and now we're revival, you know, that you don't, re critics don't bring revival, but people who have a word from God do. And so I would just say, just, just get your word from God. It doesn't take many words from God. You know, Jonah had one sentence and he brought revival to Nineveh, very pagan city. You don't have to say much if it's come from God. So just get a word from God and share that. Uh, quit criticizing sinners for being sinful and instead give them a word from God and uh, it'll prick their heart and uh, can transform them. 
you know, Richard, uh, one of the reasons why we wanted to ask you to be a part of this conversation, um, I remember, so we, we think about the spiritual heritage that we had. Yeah. And um, so uh, a lot of people have gone through millions, literally millions of people have gone through experiencing God. And, um, and a lot of people would think, well, that church must be like a mega church or something. And uh, it was just a modest sized church. Yeah. And, and, um, and yet, nor- it, it, it was normal for people to respond both to the gospel and into ministry. And, um, and then, and then the sort of open handed way that your dad led that, that they, he didn't keep him in the church. He said, there's the gospel needs to be in this town or that town or some other place. And he would, he would help, he would send them over. And, and, um, and then you look across our work in Canada, at least the work that, you know, we're a part of and, and such a high percentage of the leaders came from that one church. Yeah. And, um, and so it's a, it's a, a living testimony, I think, of what spiritual authority is. And uh, when you see John, how, how John 1, 14, how Jesus was described as, you know, this revelation, you know, full of grace and truth. Mm-hmm. And, and we're used to one or the other. We're yeah. used to the, the truth preachers spitting and foaming at the mouth and there is no grace in them. And we're used to the Oprah type preachers that are grace and and there's no truth but when people get to see not one moderated by one not one balanced by one but grace fully embraced and truth fully embraced then we are in a sense of spiritual authority at that point yeah yeah you know and i and i found uh one of the privileges i've had and i watched my dad do is i i get to speak in a lot of denominations uh and and a lot of denominations i don't agree with everything I, i don't agree with all their theology but they they put me on the platform, so I'm I'm going to preach anyway, and uh, and I, and a lot of times I'm nervous because sometimes I'm in denominations that are way out from where I you know I would be comfortable in, and and I always agonize and say God, what am I going to do? I don't want them to dislike me. I don't want them to think I'm just condemning them. But I but I want to share truth, and God always just sort of gives me a word that says just stick to the word, just share the word, open the word up, and just share that, share this, and with grace and humility, just present it. And I'll tell you, it's just amazing. I can't tell how many denominations I've been in, how many different countries, and people respond the same way. When, when it's grace and truth, uh, you're just sharing graciously, just sharing the truth. It's amazing. And, and I watched my dad have this authority. Like, he'd be preaching truth and with grace, and uh, he wouldn't even be done his sermon yet. And people would just start streaming to the front and just start praying. And like, the whole front's full, and he's still like a third of a sermon to go. And it's like what's going on here? Well, people just heard truth. They heard authority. They, they weren't shouted at, they weren't condemned, but they, they know in their hearts, what we've just heard is true. We've got to respond to that. And so I always prayed, God, just give me that. I don't have to, like, and if that authority doesn't come from being a pastor of a mega church or writing a bestseller. It just, as people would listen to you, the, the spirit just affirms and says, now that is from me. That's me you're hearing. And I just wanted to be that kind of person. Wow. That just makes my heart burn too, right? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Because anybody could do that, you know? Anybody could do that. And I've been humbled sometimes by the widow, by the single mom, by the teenage kid who said something, and I was smitten. And I knew right away that was a word from God. 
that that I would never respect that person necessarily for the job they hold, how with car they drive, and house they live in. But I just heard truth. Yeah. And uh, some a lot of times that comes from one of my kids or from my wife. <laughs> I'm like, hey, wait a minute, I'm the preacher here. I'll do the condemning. <laughs> but my wife has said something, and it's put me to my knees, and I realize yeah. that there's an authority there, and I have to respond to that. Yeah, no, that's good. Maybe um. I mean, it gets down to what the heart of belief is, really. Um, um, we, we tend to um, make belief uh, a noun. We make it something that we own, a possessive thing. We, 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 these are our beliefs. Write them down and I'll sign it. These are the things I believe. And, um, and, and yet we see in Scripture, it's always a verb. It's an active mm-hmm. verb. It's a. It's not something we own. It's something we do. We we never own a belief. We live a belief. Yeah. And um, and until that sort of belief moves from here down to our, you know, every other part of our body, we really don't believe that belief. And um, mm-hmm. and I think that that same logic applies to the authority of Scripture. It applies to the. You you we might say we believe in all of Scripture, but we only believe the parts that we live. And, yeah. um, yeah. and so yeah. you're, <laughs> I would say I've, I've seen people violate all kinds of commands of scripture as they castigated people that didn't agree with their view of scripture. Yeah. It's like, well, you're not practicing it. Uh, if you, if you really believed it, you'd be practicing it as well. We saw a lot of fruit of that in our own tribe, haven't we? And, yeah. uh, yeah. yeah. And so, um, what, what advice would you give a, a, church planter, a pastor that wants to disciple his people, her people to, um, to believe. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I would start with teaching. I'd say the, the Bible says this now go practice it this week, go practice it. And, uh, and then let's come back and let's talk about how it went and, and don't, and don't practice it just among your tribe, among other fellow believers, go practice it out there. It's, I remember, uh, I was going to go speak to a pastor's conference, but I typically take a lift ride to the airport to, to go to conferences. So I'm in a lift ride with a very non-Christian person and, uh, and she's she's playing music at some kind of rap song that is like it's like there's a sexual experience going on in the car. I mean, it's very vulgar and explicit, and I'm uh, very awkward. And I I finally just started engaging her so that it, in conversation, so she'll turn down this obscene song. And I'm thinking, okay, this is nothing like the environment I'm headed for. <laughs> I'm about to surround myself with pastors, and here's a very un, a, a lost person. But I just began to talk, and, and basically, I'm trying. I'm I'm sort of practicing my sermon on her. Like I know it will work on these pastors, but I want to know if it will work on her. And we, by the time we pulled up in front of the airport, you know, she pushed back. Like some simple things, I know I get an amen from a pastors group. She's looking at me funny, like, "What do you mean by that?" And I realized, well, you know, I I've got to get my beliefs to the point where I can convey that in a way she may not agree with me, but she could respect at least how I presented it. And, and I, and I, I I just feel like you need to train people to do that. Like Mm -hmm. take what you believe and go out into a lost world and practice it there. Uh, Because we, we sometimes just assume because all the people who agree with us liked it, that it's, it's good. And it needs to be tested in the, in the world. Uh, And Jesus constantly was out in the real with sinners sharing truth and they they loved having him around you know and and so i that's the testing ground 
it doesn't mean that they have to agree with you because you, you don't want to modify your truth so that unbelievers agree necessarily, but can you convey it in a way that you can actually have an intelligent conversation with a lost person and it sort of makes sense and it has an impact? That's great. Oh, man. So, you know, we did get a question and, and I think it might be a right time to throw it in here. But um, are there any schools that you would recommend that have this practical theology training alongside, you know, the, the, the practice, the experiencing, um, and then coming back and debriefing, right? It's not just the internship at the end that then I go and make photocopies and no one actually debriefs it with me. But, uh, yeah. But, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't normally do that. Uh, I mean, I met some, I was on an interview yesterday with a school uh, that's teaching our leader, the leadership book I wrote. Uh, and I it seemed like a great school, but you know, I, I, I more of a just encourage people to do their own homework and, and check it out and talk to people who've been there and, and, if you see a pastor that really is knocking it out of the park, go ask them where they went to school and what teachers did they get? What teachers really impacted them and uh, who should I get? And that's kind of what I did. You know, I was actually all set to go to the school my dad went to. And then I got talking to people and got persuaded to go to a different school. Nothing wrong with my dad's school, but, um, but I just, in talking to people, I just liked what I was hearing from people. And, and, and I asked them which professor, do I take? Who do you recommend? I, I did a lot of my own groundwork because it's got to fit you, you know? I, so I, yeah, I'm always a little shy about just naming schools. There's a good one in Canada. I used to lead, <laughs> you could go to, but, um, but yeah, I just say, but do your homework. The real question know? he, she was asking is which ones would you not recommend, but don't answer that either. <laughs> well, the real question I was asking is, do they exist? Is there hope? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's why it's hard to recommend a school because most of them have their flaws, you know, and that's why you want to get around because I know some schools that are worth going to just for two or three professors that are there. And you might have to endure some of the other professors, but there's some that are worth the whole price of admission. So, you know, get, get around. I've had, I could name a couple of professors that changed my life and it was worth a couple of the boring ones I had to endure as well. So, you know, I'd ask around and yeah, but you're not going to find a perfect one. And, and some of that may just mean that you, that school itself is, ah, it's okay. But there's a ministry there or a church you could serve in that would give you all that experience at the same time. And that would be, you might work yeah. under a great pastor in the area. And that's where the real education comes, where you get to practice what you're learning from the academicians at the school. Well, Richard, it, is, was, a, it was fun. Fun to do this with you. And, oh, uh, thanks. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you are the right, you're the right voice to have this conversation with because um, I know how much you love the Lord and how much you love his word. And uh, because this is a tricky conversation to have. A lot of people are saying, well, you're yeah. going liberal here. And, uh, and, and really, that's not, I think the most conservative position we could have is that God is our everything. And, yeah. um, and we, we don't stand a, a, a hope without, without him showing up and working. And yeah. so, uh, so thank you for, for fanning that flames, putting that light onto this subject. Really appreciate it. Uh, it's been my privilege to be with you. Yeah. Oh, Richard, yeah. Thanks so much. And for those of you that are watching, um, are going to watch this, uh, as the recording later, we've got one session left in two weeks. We are going to talk about how to move from, you know, this, this ch idea that church then has ministries into the community, uh, moving away from that kind of idea to one where the church networks, with other nonprofits and other churches to reach their city and building these kingdom networks. What does that look like? How do we think about that? Um, we're going to have Onea 
Akuwabe and Tony Wilkerson from Tampa Underground uh, with us next time. So we're going to talk about what does the kingdom look like if it manifests in your city? How do you partner with others in that? Uh, Dr. Blackaby, it's been such a pleasure to have you with us today and to have this conversation. I hope for those of you that are listening, you heard that we love scripture. You heard <laughs> that we love the word of God, um, but that we understand the role that it plays uh, in, our, in our faith and in our life. And more than that, we want to have a life that reflects Jesus, that, that is good news, that carries the weight of the kingdom forward. So I hope that it has been encouraging to you. I hope that it has been uplifting and life-giving to you. And for all those questions that you don't know and you haven't sussed it out in the scripture, I just want to encourage you, keep asking Jesus, what is he going to teach you? What does he want you to know? And know that it's mysterious and that he doesn't answer all the questions. And thank goodness there's not a test. <laughs> so we can rest, we can be at peace in that, and we can actually get to know our Father. So, yeah, thank everyone for joining us. Have a wonderful week. Dr. Blackaby, thanks again. It's been good to be with you.